Welcome to Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures. This week I talk about the 1945 Fritz Lang film Scarlet Street. Joan Bennett stars as Catherine Kitty March, or as her pimp boyfriend Johnny, played by Dan Durier, calls her Lazy Legs. Kitty is an exciting mix of trash and treasure. She has a childlike innocence and a deep-seated sense of romance that feels like a gothic revival set to swing-time music. That word lazy, when coupled with the idea of trash as a character descriptor, gets right to the point of the next two episodes, Femme Fatales. Kitty's brand of Femme Fatale is slightly different than, say, Barbara Stanwyck's in Double Indemnity. Kitty has a childlike quality that is more like a Bronte sister's character than a gangster's mall. But she's also an unapologetically free woman in her sexuality, rage, and physical presence. She is devoted to love and romance, to the point of mental and physical injury, but not yet broken by it. Therefore, she is still embodied and driven by pleasure and self-interest. She is unaware that her freedom-seeking is actually a trap, but that doesn't muddy the health of her underlying motivations. A femme fatale is defined as a woman who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. I have two different responses to that definition. Then I will give my own. The first is that women are made to be the vessel for men's failures almost always. We are the receptacle for their bullshit. We are gaslit into swallowing and remaining silent about the pain we feel physically and emotionally. Every woman knows the source of their burdens and the stupid little games we play to protect men and their feelings. So, if that's the reality, the femme fatale as defined by Webster's is the avenging angel of women. The one who, instead of absorbing the failures of men, exploits them and ultimately destroys the man. Here is where I waver some. I don't actually believe the destruction of men in the majority of film noirs is at the hands of the femme fatale. It's usually by their own hand. The only difference between a femme fatale and a girl Friday is that a femme fatale isn't taking responsibility or accountability for the man's bullshit, whereas that is the job description of a girl Friday. If you don't know what a Girl Friday is, go watch His Girl Friday. But briefly, I will say it is essentially the right-hand man of a man who doesn't properly value or love her and is in fact dating another woman. My definition of a femme fatale is a woman who is free in any way she can be. She is a cowboy pursuing her right to freedom and happiness at any and all costs. She does this not by mimicking a man, but by being a fully embodied woman. I say that with the understanding that we are talking types here, representational archetypes. So, for example, fairy tale witches represent the primary source of knowledge and power, but they are often drawn as wicked or ugly. We have to read between the lines and not dismiss too quickly what we were trained to hate in women and ourselves, mainly anything other than innocence. I am of the mind that one of the reasons it is easy for people to hate femme fatales is their overt femme expressions and their beauty. 
beauty that is not innocent. It contains adult sexuality and femme expressions that exist outside of the world of men. When you pair an unapologetically feminine woman with powers sourced from sexually laced beauty, it is not as easily contained by men. If we are in the world of archetypes, then it is easy to see her dismissal as an example of widespread hatred of women, period. Specifically, women with power, and especially those who use that to their own ends. There is a reason this archetype stuck around in different iterations for decades. Now it shows up the most in television made for women. I'm thinking of the bitch on all reality television shows the Real Housewives franchise, and soap operas, daytime and primetime, as examples of modern-day femme fatales. Melrose Place's tagline was, Mondays are a bitch. Heather Locklear's character, Amanda Woodward, was the face of that campaign. I will talk about Amanda Woodward at some point, but next week I will focus on a different Melrose Place character, Sydney Andrews, played by Laura Layton in relationship to, and in comparison with, this week's focus, Joan Bennett's Kitty March. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Joan Bennett worked on a soap in the late 1960s. She played the matriarch on the ABC soap opera Dark Shadows. I will definitely get to Dark Shadows, Joan Bennett's role in the show, and the recently departed Laura Parker's character, Angelique Bouchard, in a later episode. But for now, let's talk about Kitty. Scarlet Street was directed by Fritz Lang and stars Joan Bennett as Kitty, a young model-slash-actress turned hustler-slash-whore. She is deeply in love with Johnny, played by Dan Durier, her pimp boyfriend, who exploits her desire for him by pointing it in the direction of other men. Chris, full name Chris Cross, played by Edward G. Robinson, is a humdrum workaday bank cashier with a passion for painting and a strained relationship with his wife, Adele, played by Rosalind Ivan. Kitty lives with her roommate, Millie, played by Margaret Lindsay. Millie is the wise counterpart to Kitty's careless maiden. If this were a fairy tale, she would be the older sister who warns of the dead bodies of women piling up in Bluebeard's basement. As a side note, there is a Bluebeardian Joan Bennett movie also directed by Fritz Lang called The Secret Beyond the Door that is well worth the watch. Chris meets and falls for Kitty after he receives a gold watch as a reward for his 25 years of unwavering service as a bank cashier. At the party thrown to honor his stalwartness as an employee, Chris was offered a cigar, which was lit by a match that had just lit two other gentlemen's cigars, making him the third on a match, a bad omen based on an advertising campaign for matches mounted at the turn of the 20th century. The saying goes that the third on a match dies. Chris Cross had his fingers crossed to ward off this potential bad omen. Side note, there is a 1932 film called Three on a Match, starring Betty Davis, Joan Blondell, and Anne Dvorak. The plot hinges on that particular superstition and is a good starting point for those unfamiliar with the saying. 
Chris rescues Kitty from Johnny's street corner beatdown, and so begins a one-sided financially backed love affair spurred on in the background by Johnny. Chris lies about his income, and Kitty cons him into paying for a Greenwich Village apartment where he can paint and she can live rent-free with Johnny as a repeated overnight guest. Johnny becomes suspicious of the value of Chris's paintings and takes a couple to sell for cash. In a strange twist of fate, Chris's art is seen by a prominent art critic and gallery owner. The pair search for the painter and end up at Kitty's doorstep. Johnny tells them Kitty is the artist. Chris finds out, and instead of being upset, he is thrilled that his work has been sold and believes that Kitty's beauty facilitated the sale, in effect cheapening his work and her struggle as a woman all at the same time. Chris becomes overly attached to his paid-for muse, Kitty, and when presented with the opportunity to get out of his marriage to Adele so he can marry Kitty, he takes it. When Chris arrives, suitcase in hand, at Kitty's apartment, he finds her and Johnny kissing. Kitty winds up stabbed to death with an ice pick, Johnny is executed by the state for a crime he did not commit, and Chris is sentenced to life on the streets with only ghosts as his companions. That's love, baby. Scarlet Street is costumed by Travis Banton. Banton was to Paramount in the 1930s what Adrian was to MGM. By 1945, the year Scarlet Street came out, Banton was working freelance, and while a fantastic designer, he was struggling with alcoholism. His designs for Kitty reflect his understanding of human nature, like it was his second nature. Kitty's opening look is a lot like Judy's first look in Vertigo. It's unmistakably trashy. But unlike Judy, there is an incredible innocence to Kitty and how she behaves. Only a deft eye can create clothes to suit that contradiction. I am a huge fan of Banton's work in the 1930s. He designed for Dietrich's most notable roles, as well as some of my favorite Carol Lombard looks. But his work in B-movies and noirs tends to be undervalued. Jack P. Pierce was the makeup artist, and Carmen Dirge was the hairstylist. The screenplay was written by Dudley Nichols, but was based on a French book, and the subsequent 1931 Renoir film of the same title, The Bitch. Interestingly, the children's author Ludwig Bemmelman, who authored the Madeline books, was involved early on in the screenwriting process of the 1945 version of the film. His contribution is uncredited, and as far as I know, not significant. But very interesting, considering the childlike qualities that give Kitty's brand of femme fatale its unique fawn-like feeling. Scarlet Street is the first film released through Fritz Lang and Joan Bennett's production company, Diana Productions, named after Joan Bennett's daughter. The film is sort of the unofficial follow-up to Woman in the Window, which is often confused with Scarlet Street because it also stars Bennett, Durier, and Robinson. Woman in the Window doesn't register to me as being nearly as exciting or rife with meeting as Scarlet Street. Kitty is what makes the film special. 
except for Martha Vickers as Carmen Sternwood in The Big Sleep, I can't think of another innocent femme fatale of that era. There is freedom to Kitty's unadulterated purity around sex and love. This isn't a Lolita effect. It's much more actively involved. It's not about seduction or child rape. It's about romance and love. The first scene I'm going to break down is when we meet Kitty. She's being bawled out by Johnny on a dimly lit street corner. The ground is wet with rain. He hits her repeatedly until she's on the ground, and then he kicks her. Chris sees the fight from afar and rushes over with his umbrella to play savior to Kitty's damsel in distress. He hits Johnny with his umbrella and then braces for the counterattack. But Johnny is knocked out flat on his back, and Kitty is fine. She sits like a vision of practical womanhood on the curb of the Lower East Side Street, checking her jawline for potential breaks. She is dressed in a cheap-looking black silk number with short, slightly poofed shoulders and a sign of the Times hemline that falls right above her knee. World War II fabric shortages led to shorter hemlines and simpler designs. No more bias-cut gowns with trains and tulle. Gaudy costume jewelry adorns every possible area of interest on her body. Beaded bangles bounce around her wrists, and large beads waterfall down the silk of her black dress to her chest. She wears a plastic raincoat, dime store style, over the ensemble, and carries a round wrist bag that has been thrown haphazardly to the ground during her scuffle with Johnny. Her shoes are platformed peekaboo-toed heels with an ankle strap and a poof on each toe that mirrors her hat. Adorable and sexy all at the same time. She looks like a dance hall hostess on her first or last night of work. Chris runs off to fetch a police officer. Johnny gets up and runs away. By the time Chris comes back... Johnny is gone, and Kitty has pointed the cop in the wrong direction. Kitty asks Chris to walk her home, to lead him away from the scene and buy Johnny some time. The two pop in for a drink at the bar below Kitty's apartment. Sitting at the near-empty neighborhood bar, the two talk. Self-centered Chris sees Kitty as an extension of himself and assumes she is a fellow artist, in her case, an actress on her way home from a play, and not the girlfriend-slash-prostitute of the man hitting her on the street. Kitty guesses Chris is a cashier, which he is, but after a conversation about the going rate of art, Kitty rethinks her correct gut instinct and asks if he is an artist. He says yes. Kitty assumes he is a successful one because he speaks about the high cost of art as if he could afford it. Chris enjoys his foray into playing Kitty's savior and stupidly thinks that he is in fact a good guy. Although a monstrous pimp, Johnny is still the object of affection in this film, and Dan Durier does an excellent job of making a slap across the face feel like a kiss. Kitty's obvious total devotion to him is both naive and wholehearted. She is no fool, but is willing to exploit the blatant idiocy of Chris in service of her relationship with Johnny. Her practicality is juxtaposed with her devotion, creating a whole woman. She is both 
a capable woman, and a representation of patriarchal injury. Chris is supposed to be the relatable character, the one injured by a fate so devious that only a beautiful woman could deliver it. That is far from my experience of this film. I have never felt one iota of sympathy for Chris, and neither should you. He is a wimp who never sees Kitty and treats her as a prop to his ego from day one. The next scene that illustrates Kitty's romantic wonder, paired with her unapologetic presence, takes place in her apartment. Johnny is in the hall, where he happens upon a letter written to Kitty from Chris. Kitty is lounging on her floral couch, eating grapes, reading a magazine entitled Love Stories, and throwing cigarette butts into the sink full of dirty dishes. She is wearing a slightly sheer robe, trimmed with marabou feathers. Johnny is dressed in suit pants, a button-up shirt, a bow tie, and suspenders. He looks like a fair-haired snake oil salesman, posing as a fuller brushman. The record begins to skip, repeating, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, over and over again. Johnny turns off the record player and says, Can't you get those lazy legs off that couch? Lazy legs is Johnny's nickname for Kitty. The connotations are endless. She says, Come here. He leans over and kisses her. She says, Can't you do any better than that? He says, that's all you think about, lazy legs. She says, what else is there to think about? Coming off the kiss, Johnny shows her the letter he found and convinces her to roll Chris for some dough. Kitty is reluctant, but agrees. Johnny pushes the point by saying he might actually like to come see her if she had her own apartment creating a new angle of instability in the relationship in which to exploit her feelings for him to his advantage. This is one of my favorite moments in the film. It captures an important contradiction in her character. She is a sexual woman, but also a romantic child. Of course, the topic at hand is sex, specifically Kitty's appetite for it and Johnny's withholding and exploitation of it in exchange for it. We all know the rules of the game when it comes to breaking and controlling a person, especially if you're a woman who made it past 14. They offer you crumbs of love in exchange for cooperation. That cooperation isn't always as devious as actually turning you out for their profit, but sometimes it's just to mold you, control you, or simply feel more secure around you. Johnny is an expert at this. He is a slippery snake, but suave while he slithers. He pushes her towards Chris all while dangling his love in return. He acts as though he is really going to marry her, love her, and so on, all while systematically making her feel that she is the one who is lazy or lacks follow-through. Kitty's ravenous desire for Johnny isn't simply sexual, which is quick to be punished in the postcode world of film noir. It is romantic. She is the modern-day descendant of a Jane Austen character. Her childlike wonder and utter belief in love, as if it were the word of God, paired with her loose, modern-day morals and messy manners, is what makes her a new type of girl. She is an interesting study into innocence lost and the actual meaning of purity, 
not to mention the station for women in a world full of men. Kitty lives as her full self because she is not yet aware of the incredibly restrictive and life-sucking trap she is in and how to maneuver within it. Her wiser roommate, Millie, knows the trap and articulates the knowledge to Kitty in the next scene. Honey, what's happened to you? Don't you wish it could happen to you? I'm in love, crazy in love, with a man that pushes you around the way I wouldn't push a cat around. You leave Johnny out of this. With your looks and figure, you could get any man you want. Sure, but there's only one I want. Yeah, and he's making a trap out of you. You wouldn't know love if it hit you in the face. If that's where it hits you, you ought to know. Later, after Kitty has written to and met up with Chris, she convinces him to rent her an apartment in the village, where she can live and he can paint. Of course, the majority of Kitty's company isn't Chris, it's Johnny. One afternoon, Johnny and Kitty are looking at Chris's paintings that now litter the apartment, and Johnny isn't convinced that the work looks legit, but he needs some money, so he decides to take a few paintings and sell them, regardless of Kitty's objections. Kitty, more focused on Johnny than the paintings, is wearing a chic little wrap robe dress with short sleeves and a front tie. Large, stripe detailing makes her look like a sporty sophisticate rather than a trashy good time, but it's still a half-dressed look that calls into play the careless, casual sexuality that is her signature. Kitty says to Johnny about Chris, He tried to kiss me today and don't think I liked it. Johnny waves her off and says, Ah, you've been kissed before. The look on Kitty's face when he says this is incredible. It's the look of genuine hurt and disappointment, but that of a child trying to get a treat. Children don't register cruelty as a sign of something to avoid. It just is. They simply keep trying to get the treat. Kitty has been captured and doesn't have the skills to get out because she is still too innocent and, most importantly, life is not yet a fact. What I mean by that is that her history has not yet become a palpable burden that is not only carried constantly, but also visible and witnessed by others. In many ways, this is a beautiful and enviable time for Kitty. Regardless of the vileness of her circumstances, she has the special magic of someone not yet beaten back. In response to Johnny's apathy, lack of jealousy, and absence of care, she accuses him of not loving her. He takes her in his arms and kisses her, giving her a little bit of satiation for her appetite, a crumb that keeps her coming back for more and perpetuates the delusion of love that the child in her is so enraptured by and the physical contact that the woman in her desires. The thing that neither Johnny nor Chris could take from Kitty is her incredible spirit. A spirit with confidence, strength, and a voracious appetite for sex and love. There have been accusations thrown at the femme fatales epitomized by Kitty's kind that suggest she is masochistic, or simply the representation of the dark side of men's fear of inadequacy. These claims come from all kinds of film critics, including one of my favorites, Molly Haskell, and her fantastic feminist work, From Reverence to Rape. She claims Kitty used Chris, as opposed to what I think is plainly clear. Kitty profited off of her commodification, but she wasn't the one exploiting it. Johnny was. 
I reject the line of thought that labels Kitty as the villain. It's incomplete at best and lacks the recognition of the joy and power of Kitty's right to love, rage, and a decent apartment. Kitty is delightful because she has her own personality. Even trapped in love with a pimp and conning a doldrum, she retains lively glamour that lives in the light that caresses her the way Chris can't and fills her the way Johnny never could. A great scene where Kitty is fully embodied takes place in her Greenwich Village apartment, which has become more ornate and filled with frills every time we see it. There are three-tiered ruffled lampshades, a duvet with lush layers of frills, and floral-patterned wallpaper that laughs in the face of minimalism and masculinity. Chris arrives at the apartment to paint, but finds Johnny there. Chris questions Kitty's relationship with Johnny, not passionately, but meekly. Kitty responds angrily. Go ahead and paint if you want to. I'm not going to stick around here if you're going to torment me. Kitty storms away angrily, slamming her bedroom door behind her, stripping down to her slip and lighting a cigarette, which she throws into the bathroom without a second look. This expression of rage satiates her starved passion and expresses her frustration. It's also extremely satisfying to watch. Chris hovers outside of Kitty's bedroom door, begging for her to speak to him. Kitty puts on her previously mentioned robe and opens her bedroom door. She apologizes half-heartedly before Chris comes at her with a bullshit marriage proposal, given that he is already married, and a request to paint her. She flops down on a Shea lounge and says, Paint me, Chris. She hands him a bottle of nail polish and stretches out her leg to present him with her foot. He gets down on one knee and paints her toenails. This is revelatory. Who doesn't want a man on his knees groveling? It's the most attractive Chris is in the whole film. Kitty gains some power in this scene that suits her embodied sexuality and soothes her wayward inner child. Chris reattempts his marriage proposal later in the film after finding out that Adele's first husband isn't actually dead. He goes to Kitty's with the suitcase in hand, prepared to start their new life together. But instead, he walks in to find Kitty with another man. Kitty says, Johnny, oh Johnny. Johnny welcomes her into his arms and says, Lazy legs. Kitty says, Jeepers, I love you. The lovers kiss. After Chris witnesses this scene, he leaves and slams the door behind him alerting Kitty and Johnny to his presence. Johnny loses his temper, blames Kitty, slaps her, says he is done with her, and storms off. Later that evening, in Kitty's final scene, she sits up in her bed surrounded by an ornate silk headboard, floral wallpaper, mirrored nightstands flanking the bed, and pillows piled up all around her. She talks on her bedside phone with girlish glee to her friend Millie about the row she and Johnny had earlier in the evening. Listen, he can't live without me any more than I can live without him. Said he was coming back here to beat me up. Jeepers, the way that guy shoots off his mouth. Oh, you don't have to warn me. That's just the way he talks. If you were in love, you'd understand. 
Oh, stop it. Johnny wouldn't kill a fly. <laughs> That's love, honey. Here he is now. And has he got a bun on? Goodbye, hon. Her excitement for her lover to come back, even in a state of wild violence, is to be expected of anyone head over heels. This, to me, does not spell masochism or low self-esteem. More like reality for women of a certain walk of life. In other words, not wealthy and protected by their fathers. I would say we have all been there, but I guess there are plenty of women who haven't. I haven't met one yet, though. Kitty's bedroom door slowly opens and she calls, Come on in, Johnny. Chris, not Johnny, walks through the door, horrifically slumped and almost inhuman in his movements. Chris slinks across the room to her bedside. He attempts to reason with Kitty, begging her to agree to marry him. He explains to her that his wife's old husband returned, freeing him up to marry Kitty. He tells her that she can't possibly love Johnny, all the while ignoring what she is saying with every fiber of her being, Get out. She turns and buries her head in the plush pillows. Chris begs her not to cry. She turns her head up and faces him with laughter, not tears, in her eyes and shouts, You fool! You're old and ugly and I'm sick of you. It's at this moment that Kitty becomes larger than life to me. She completely refuses her given role of placating woman or subservient whore and tells him what she actually thinks. Let us not forget that Chris is essentially a John, unwitting perhaps, but I'm not sure that makes it better. This moment of pure honesty and unbridled agency is the moment that sends the supposed good guy of our story over the edge. Chris picks up an ice pick placed there earlier for cocktail hour by Johnny, and viciously stabs the now cowering under the covers Kitty. The version of the film I have shows Chris stabbing her four times. It was originally seven times, which feels like a more apt number for a patriarchal-sponsored murder of a woman that took up too much space. Chris leaves the scene of the crime just as Johnny arrives, drunk and ready to knock around the little woman. Johnny is arrested and sentenced to death for Kitty's murder, with the help of Chris's lies. Chris gets found out for stealing money from the bank he works for. He is fired and ends up in a shitty SRO hotel haunted by the sounds of Kitty and Johnny's voices, now reunited in the ever after thanks to him. He attempts to hang himself from the room's light fixture, but is rescued before his merciful last breath comes. He roams the streets as a vagrant, all while being haunted by Kitty and Johnny. Even in death, Kitty gets what she wants, Johnny. They are together, and Chris is doomed to live his days out suffering under the knowledge that he brought them together by killing Kitty and setting Johnny up to take the fall. That is proof positive that the poison is in the hearts of men, not the black silk stockings of hookers. 
poetic wrap-up, if you ask me. Next time on Window Dressing, American Trash and National Treasures, it's Sydney Andrews Week. As I said in the opening, I will be comparing the modern-day femme fatale to her classic counterpart, Kitty. Both women wound up dead, and both turned tricks on their way there. So I will see you in two weeks, on the sunny streets of West Hollywood, in the Peyton's Place of the New Generation, Melrose Place. Please like and subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Instagram at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I'm Madeline Jane Auble, and thank you for listening.